G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Radio in Melbourne with financial support of the Community Radio Foundation. We come to you on Community Radio Network through your local community radio. Today we go to the Downer EDI dispute in Miraburra, Queensland, where workers voted unanimously to take industrial action over personal leave entitlements and cost of living wage increases. We then speak with Cam Walker, campaign officer for Friends of the Earth, about the Victorian Liberal Opposition Leader's statement that, if elected, he would scrap Victoria's renewable energy target. We want to know what this will mean to jobs, especially in rural Victoria. But first, some workers' news. More than a thousand Western Australian Alcoa workers have gone on strike after concerns about job security. 1,500 to 1,600 workers at the company's refineries in Kowana, Pinjara and Wagarup, as well as the Bauxite mine sites in Huntley and Willowdale, are taking the protected action. The Australian Workers' Union says it's been negotiating on behalf of the workers with the company for 20 months for a new enterprise bargaining agreement, but won't sign the new deal. According to the union, Alcoa's offer includes a clause allowing forced redundancies. AWU Secretary Mike Zoabub said, We are under time pressure. The guys have been patient for a very long time. Unfortunately, right up to the last minute, we've tried to reach out to Alcoa to prevent this indefinite stoppage, but we've come up empty-handed. Alcoa wants to establish a modern EBA giving it the right to change wages and conditions based on their perception of what is happening in the international markets, leaving workers without security of employment, wages and conditions. Alcoa directly employs more than 3,750 people in Western Australia. This is a developing story. Coles workers have received pay rises of as much as $150 a week after a substandard wages deal between the shop assistance union and supermarket giant was replaced. The big boost in wages, and up to 20% rise for some low-paid workers, comes after a long-running push by the new union on the block, the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, RAFU. The old deal signed off by SDA, the Shop Distributive and Allied Employees Association with Coles, slashed or did not pay at all penalty rates and other entitlements in exchange for modest increases in hourly pay. In 2016, the full bench of the Fair Work Commission found that deal failed the better off overall test, the legal test that means that uh, workers are not being paid less or disadvantaged by a new deal. It took nearly another two years of legal wrangling after the Fair Work ruling for a new agreement to take effect. The deal now largely reflects the minimum rates of the award. Nellio Del Silvia, who has worked for more than five years at Coles, now gets paid an extra $140 a week under the new deal. He recently joined the new union, the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, whose secretary, Josh Cullinan, exposed the Coles deal in 2015. I was always after a union that represented me better, Mr Del Silvia said. 
RAFU's Josh Cullinan said his union was pushing to replace substandard wages deals involving the SDA across fast food and retail. The next target was Woolworths, where bargaining is underway. Our action at Coles has returned those minimum conditions. We are now fighting for this everywhere else. If you are at university and struggling to make ends meet, you're not alone, according to a recent survey by University Australia. The peak body for universities has carried out a survey every few years looking at how students are coping financially with being in higher education. This year's survey covered 18,500 students in 38 universities. It found that an average one in seven students 15% had gone without food or other necessities because they simply didn't have the cash. That rate rises to one in five students, 19%, who live in rural or regional areas, and one in four, 25%, of Indigenous students. And if you say they should get a job, consider this. Four out of five students already do have a job, and the hours they are working are steadily increasing. Nearly one-third of students, 30%, work more than 20 hours a week. In order to be a university student and pay for the essentials like food, rent, transport and even energy, it costs about $433 a week. The maximum rate of youth allowance if you don't have kids is $445.80 a fortnight, which is just under $11,600 a year. In another blow for university students, uh, the Parliament, which resumes this week after its winter recess, is considering lowering the help repayment threshold. That means that politicians will be debating whether or not former uni students need to repay their student loans sooner when they start earning $45,000 instead of the present $52,000. The Liberal New South Wales government is facing a high court fight ahead of the March 2019 election after the peak body for the state's trade unions confirmed it would challenge a new electoral funding law that threatens union members with jail time for engaging in joint election campaigns. A coalition of six unions led by Unions New South Wales filed a high court challenge to the laws which dramatically curtail the amount of money third-party campaigners, such as trade unions, can spend in the six months before an election, including on television and radio campaigns. Professor Anne Toomey, a constitutional law expert at the University of Sydney, said the new laws significantly reduce the capacity of third-party campaigners to be heard during an election campaign, and it may be difficult for the New South Wales government to justify the changes. The previous spending cap was set so that political parties could expend approximately nine times as much as a third-party campaigner, and the third-party campaigner could spend at least $1 million so that its views could become widely known. They can now only spend $500,000, while a political party can spend up to 22 times as much. The laws passed in May also prevent third-party campaigners banding together or acting in concert during an election campaign to pool their resources and exceed the expenditure cap. A jail term of up to 10 years applies if a person participates in such a scheme in order to circumvent the cap. A maximum two-year jail term applies to other contraventions of the laws.
Political campaigners get jails in countries like Zimbabwe, Cambodia or North Korea, not New South Wales, said Mark Moray, elected secretary of the union's New South Wales. Working people have always pooled our resources to make sure our voice is heard as we simply don't have the resources of an AMP or a Commonwealth Bank or Malcolm Turnbull for that matter, he said. The New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association, Electrical Trade Unions, New South Wales Teachers Federation, United Services Union and Health Services Union have joined Unions New South Wales in bringing the case. You're listening to Stick Together, workers' stories and union news. Broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. At a mass meeting last Wednesday, workers at Downer EDI's Mirabara factory in Queensland voted unanimously to walk off the job to protect personal leave entitlements and secure a cost-of-living pay increase. The Mirabara site is one of the last train manufacturing worksites in Australia. Downer Group describes itself as an integrated services company that designs, builds and sustains assets. But for workers at the Mirabara site, this does not wash when local communities are at stake. The AMWU says the action is a last resort to get down to put to employees an offer that reflects the hard work, dedication and loyalty shown to the company when its work was sent offshore by the Newman government. We caught up with Keegan Scurf, the AMWU industrial officer negotiating with Downer management for the workers. So on Friday of last week, um, members uh, at Downer, approximately 200, uh, took a four-hour stoppage to um, progress their claims in relation to replacing the existing enterprise bargaining agreement. What's at stake? What are they uh, concerned about? Well, there's three main issues. Um, the first issue is obviously the, the quantum of the pay increase, um, that is to say how much they get paid. The offer on the table at the moment isn't reflective of cost of living, which is a huge slap in the face to these workers. I'm not sure if you're aware that um, the Newman government in Queensland, the previous Newman Liberal government, in fact sold all of our train uh, manufacturing um, and uh, construction to overseas interests. Um, and it's only been on the back of uh, union members that this, ret- this work's been returned to Queensland, but back to Maryborough where it's always belonged. Um, so, the, so our workers and, and, and our members, in fact, have stood by uh, this company and stood by the Maryborough community because it was the right thing to do, um, and they've not been rewarded for that loyalty in terms of in terms of the current offer. Some of the other, um, I guess, key concerns that our members have is the um, personal leave entitlements. So, it's quite common in production industries that around productivity that you know um, if you don't take personal leave you can get you know, some of that back when you um, when you leave employment. You mean you get uh, you get paid out for that? Is that what you're saying? Uh, not all not all of it. So uh, at the moment the existing enterprise bargaining agreement says that um, if you leave the business for um, reasons other than misconduct, you will get paid fifty percent of your accrued personal leave balance. Oh, I understand. Um, that's quite so that's quite common across uh, quite common across some um, high production industries and intensive production industries. You know, they're proposing to, to gut that entirely uh, and just go back to the mandated award entitlement. And lastly, um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion around 
the use of um, you know fixed-term employees, labour hire, if you like. Downer proposed to extend you know how many fixed-term employees they can actually utilise throughout the business. So those, I guess, are the three uh, three main concerns that caused our members to direct us to facilitate them taking a stoppage on last Friday. Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, the, your, your ears prick up when you hear things like uh, the the changes to the uh, exit uh, leave policy, as well as the uh, increase in uh, non fixed employees. They they go, they go together, don't they? Well, look, I, I, yeah, absolutely, they do, um, and it's and it's quite concerning because you know Downer is a company that has made. <laughs> quite a lot of money off the back of this work coming back into Queensland. They've certainly had the benefit of, I would say, the benefit of of having uh, to not really um, fork out um, to keep their employees as as much as some of the other companies may have had to in the past. So all our members are asking for essentially at the end of the day is a a good, secure, well-paying job for them, for the Maribyrnong community and for whoever takes their job when they eventually leave the workforce. Downer is, is one of these classic multinationals with fingers in a lot of pies, um, rail construction and maintenance, road infrastructure, mining, all of that sort of stuff. You know, they're, they're, they're quite a big multinational company. Principally what our members do in the Maribor there is they actually build and maintain and repair um, train infrastructure, so trains, carriages, wagons, etc. And so this particular dispute, I mean, it, this has been, it's a tradition to uh, work in this site, isn't it? I mean, it's a, been right. there for a long time, right? So right. This, this particular dispute is actually a real wake-up call because it's not just about multinationals, it's about local employment at a proper rate, isn't it? Look, that's exactly right. This sort of workplace and this sort of industry is one where, you know, your father or your mother might have worked there and so on and so forth. And it's really it's really more at stake than just a pay rise. What's really at stake here is what does employment for the Maribyrnong community look like moving forward? Is it going to be one of transient employment where people come in on a fixed-term contract for a 12-month period and then get shuffled out the door because they're too expensive to maintain? Or is it going to be one where people can go to the bank, get a mortgage, invest back in the community, help small business through a good, well-paying, secure job? And at the end of the day, I mean, I don't think that's an unreasonable ask. And everybody that we've certainly spoken to in the Maribyrnong community tends to agree. Uh, I noticed that uh, they didn't, uh, when they walked off, they didn't go straight home. They uh, went to the Miraburra Bunnings to donate $5,000 in workers' contributions to, to, towards the buy a bail appeal towards farmers' drought relief. They could have, they could have easily towed the boat up, gone and have a long weekend and come back on Monday. Um, instead, what they chose to do um, was to walk off the job go straight down to the Maryborough Bunnings, um, where in Queensland, as I'm sure you know, it's, it's achieved national coverage, but um, drought conditions in Queensland at the moment are, are catastrophic and um, a lot of community organisations are doing their, their best and businesses are doing their best to support drought-stricken farmers. So these members put their hand in their own pocket. It wasn't union money that went to that appeal. It was actually workers uh, putting their, their hands in their own pockets to donate $5,000 um, to those to those um, to those farmers, and obviously, uh, you know, feeding two hundred 
spending 200 hungry bikes after walking off a job, they sold a lot of sausages as well. <laughs> uh, t- tell me, uh, what, what's happening now? What's going on now? What's going to happen? Well, unfortunately, Downer um, have postponed negotiations in response to um, the, um, the, the industrial action. Um, so we're still waiting for Downer to confirm with us when they want to return to the bargaining table. Um, Our members don't want to take industrial action. It's never been something that um, is lightly taken. It's never been something that um, has been deployed with, um, you know, cavalierly, I suppose. It's always been a last resort. Um, We don't want to be in a position where we have to keep taking industrial action. We don't want to be in a protracted dispute. All we simply want um, is for Downer to come back to the negotiating table and put an offer on the table that's fair and reasonable. Uh, How are the men feeling at the moment? Look, morale's down. Uh, um, morale's down. Um, they feel a bit. Um, they feel they feel a bit let down. Um, mm. Obviously, when you when you take stoppages, you don't get paid for that either. So um, you know, there's a there's a, a hit to the hip pocket in that sort of respect as well. So morale's down. But you know, every one of those members has told us that um, it's not it's not them that it's not their individual stuff that they're fighting for. It's really about you know, who comes after them and, and, and what sort of community they want to live in. So if they have to do it again, they'll do it again. Um, but, um, you know, we just simply urge Downer, um, who's based in Melbourne, to come back to the negotiating table and to present an offer that we can work with. You're listening to Stick Together, Worker Stories, Union News and Social Justice Issues on the Community Radio Network. The recent federal LMP government summit on energy and their national energy guarantee, the NEG, is being called a strategy for killing off renewables. That the plan doesn't encourage investment in renewables, it doesn't cut coal pollution, it doesn't reduce power bills, it can't be easily changed by a future government, it means the rest of the economy, such as transport and agriculture, will have to do much more to cut emissions. If this is the case, Victorian Lib leader Matthew Guy's announcement that he will scrap the Victorian Renewable Energy Target, the VRET, if elected, poses the question, can an ordinary Australian afford to vote Liberal if the Liberals don't understand the issues of environment and energy? The Victorian Government has passed legislation aiming for a 25% electricity generation from renewable energy sources by 2020, and 40% by 2025. At the moment, renewable energy sources in Victoria is 17%, and by delivering up to 650 megawatt capacity, will drive up to $1.3 billion of additional renewable energy investments, says the Victorian government. This initial investment will create around 1,250 additional two-year construction jobs, and 90 ongoing jobs in regional Victoria, they say. We spoke to Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth to get an idea of the importance of the VRET. The current debate around the National Energy Guarantee, it's really all about politics. It's not actually about energy policy. So if you unpack it a little bit, renewable energy is the cheapest form of energy. So if you have more renewables, you drive down the the wholesale price of energy over time. You still have the problem of the privatised market and the fact that the retailers price gouge. So that's separate to the physical supply. Uh, We know that coal-fired power stations are going to close down anyway. Some are already 
doing so and many more, more will happen in future decades. We know that there's, it, it doesn't make economic sense to build new coal-fired power stations so the solution has to be renewables, and renewables is part of the necessary transition to a low-carbon future. We need to do that for our survival. We also need to do it because of our international commitment. So there's a whole range of reasons that make sense to transition to renewables, but the blockage is the ideology, which is driven by the ultra-right within the federal coalition, and sadly increasingly by Matthew Guy and the Liberals in the coalition here in Victoria as well. And it all sounds highfalutin, you know, Victoria's renewable energy target, uh, but it actually has real meaning for people on the ground, doesn't it, especially in regional areas? Absolutely. So when the coalition were in power in Victoria last time, they killed off the renewable energy sector and hundreds and hundreds of people lost their jobs. I'm aware of at least one renewable company that went interstate. There was no economic assessment done of that before they enacted the policy. So it was negligent kind of level of policy. I mean, it's like Portland which has yep. got an unemployment rate of 25%. Yep, yep. and now Keppel Prince, the manufacturer down there that does a lot of renewables, is employing hundreds of people. So with the restart of what's called the VRET, the Victorian Renewable Energy Target, and that commits us to getting 25% of our energy from renewable sources by the end of this decade and then getting 40% by 2025, that's led to an incredible boost in the renewable sector. And what that then means is certainty of investment, certainty of supply, and that then allows the jobs to be created. Now, the model the government is using is a thing called a reverse auction system where they say we're going to uh, call for tenders to produce a certain amount of energy. So at present, it's for 650 megawatts of power. If you think back to the old Hazelwood power station, I think there was 1,600 to 1,800 megawatts. So it's it's more than a third of, uh, of what Hazelwood was. And then companies basically tender in to deliver that. There's also a separate kind of what they call the tranche, which was so that we could run our trams in the metro area on solar and there's two new solar facilities being built in the north of the state so that's fantastic but what this will do so the current um, auction of 650 megawatts is is expected to deliver around 1.3 billion dollars in investment it's likely to create 1250 construction jobs and then 90 permanent jobs so it's really really good in terms of investment and jobs, and then the money will largely be in regional Victoria. And then, of course, you have the landowners who rent out their land to the turbines. They make money, and then there's also the equivalent of rates that go to local councils. And local councils, as everyone knows, in regional Victoria, they're struggling to get by. You know, they've got roads, they've got everything to worry about. So it's it's basically a good news story all around. Plus, it also means action on climate. So that's, you know, the silver lining in an otherwise fantastic story. Yeah, so Friends of the Earth are actually supporting this uh, methodology. It believes that it works. It seems to work because you don't, you, you can't go to 100% renewables tomorrow. So there's a couple of things you need to do. You need to make sure the grid is ready to absorb the increase in energy that's coming in from diffuse sources. Now, our grid traditionally was we burnt a lot of coal in the Latrobe Valley. We brought it up to Melbourne, but then we pumped it through to Portland because of the Alcoa smelter, which now is winding down. And also the Point Henry smelter at Geelong, 
aluminium is a huge consumer of electricity. So we had this kind of you know grid from east to west, whereas now with renewables we have multiple sources. So we have a much more diffuse network where there's these two new solar farms being built in the north. We've got a lot of wind development in the west of the state. So we need to build the grid as we go to make sure it's fit for scale. But also building a wind farm might take in the construction phase 18 months to two or three years. So the people employed in that job, you want to give them a pipeline of jobs so they actually have job security. So you can't build it all now, A, because we don't have the ability to do it, B, because the grid isn't ready, and C, because we don't have the staff. But if you're employing local people, you need to give them a job, they work on that, then they move to the next job so they actually have security. So there's a whole range of reasons why... We can't do it all overnight, but it's essential we have legislated targets, and that's what's important about the VRET. Those targets are 25% and 40% are enshrined in legislation. It gives certainty. It gives certainty. And then the tender process, if you opt in as a um, as a company, and it's a significant amount of energy, so the, the 650 megawatts of power will be the equivalent of what Geelong, Ballarat, Bendigo and most of the Latrobe Valley consumes on a on an average basis. So it's a lot of energy. If you uh, tender into that and you're successful in your tender, you basically get a, a commercial contract which uh, is good for 15 years. So that's money in the bank in terms of lending to build the wind farm. And you've committed to supply that amount of yep. electricity and so there won't be this uh, thing that happened in South Australia where they withheld power because it was going to give them better returns. Yes, hopefully. So that's locked into contracts. So you get a you know a steady price and that's good for the retailer because it gives them certainty, but it's also very good for the consumer. Sustainability isn't about centralised large mega uh, industries. It's about actually decentralising the grid. Now, this is a psychological and philosophical difference, isn't it? It is indeed. And if we go to the federal level for a second, so the National Energy Guarantee, which ostensibly was around security of supply and prices, but it's really beholden to the far right within the coalition, as we know, uh, that was meant to uh, basically lock in lower prices. But it appears what it's doing, and and no one has seen the full detail, but the modelling suggests that it will just further entrench both coal and gas, which keeps us with the system we currently have, whereas in future we do need a more decentralised grid. And the other thing that's coming into the mix, of course, is storage, you know, which is a, it's, it's, it's gone in leaps and bounds the last couple of years. So as you get a decentralised grid, um, you get more storage locally, which actually helps offset the system over time in times of surges. You get a really hot day, you get a storm event, you get a bit of the grid go down. If we have one or two sets of lines connecting the east of the state with the west of the state, one of them goes down, we're in trouble. If we have a diverse grid, then we're able to balance that. So a diversified grid is good for local economies because it's about um, local energy sovereignty, producing energy where you consume it, but it's also about increasing the viability and the robustness of the grid. People are embracing it. There was some polling released earlier this week that showed yet again that 70% of people around Australia do want more renewable energy rather than less. So the federal government are out of step with the community and that 70% showed overwhelming support amongst coalition voters. That's it for Stick Together. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to Keegan Scurf and Cam Walker for being part of the show. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and on iTunes. And you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com 
or by calling 03 9419 Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. My name's Annie McLaughlin. Until next time, stick together. Bye.